0: You're listening to Spirit and Truth, a no-nonsense biblical look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This teaching series was delivered live at the Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford, Oregon. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Psalm 85, Psalm 85. Psalm 85. We won't be really expositing these verses this morning, but they do touch on the theme that we want to cover, which is the subject of revival. So, Psalm 85, if you will, please. Psalm 85, I've titled the message this morning, Awakening, Revival, True and False. Awakening, Revival, True and False. And we are finishing out this sermon series this morning on the person and work of the Holy Spirit by thinking about the subject of revival, what it is and what it isn't. I hope you're there by now. Psalm 85 this morning, just to kind of open us up. Psalm 85. As usual, I'll invite you to read with me. I will read the even-numbered verses. I will invite you to the odd-numbered verses, excuse me. I will invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. So Psalm 85. I invite you to follow along with the translation on the screen there so we can just read in unison. Psalm 85. I will make one quick note. When I read the Old Testament, I will often substitute the name Yahweh for Lord. Lord is a title, not a name. It's an extra-biblical tradition is why we often translate Lord the way it is. I prefer to read Yahweh because that's the name that's actually there in the original. So... If that throws you off, that's why I'm doing that. Psalm 85, I invite you to stand with me as we read out of respect for God's Word. Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Yahweh, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You withdrew all their fury. You burned from your turning anger. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Show us your faithful love, Yahweh, and give us your salvation. His salvation is very near those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Truth will spring up from the earth, and righteousness will look down from heaven. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Join with me as I breathe a word of prayer. I ask for the Spirit's help, and we get to work in this message this morning. Well, Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you. Father, we come before you. Spirit, we come before you, our triune God. And we would ask that as we think about the subject of revival and we think about the subject of, as the text we just read said, you reviving your people again, we pray that you would help us to think biblically, clear our minds of the presuppositions and misconceptions that we may have about this subject, and help us to see just what your word has to say. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is it. The final message in this marathon study in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, as we sort of land the plane on what has been, at least for me, a rather eventful journey, a journey that, if I can just be boldly transparent this morning, has infuriated some, intrigued others, I'm sure, and hopefully informed others. As we land this morning, I I want to kind of begin where I began all the way back in November. It was actually November the 1st of last year that we began this sermon series. And when we began, those of you who were here for that very first sermon, which aren't that many, unfortunately, but the handful of you who were here for that first message will remember that I began this series with a lengthy quote from A.W. Pink. I'm not going to reproduce that entw- entire quote, but allow me to quote just the end of it. Because I think he says something that I think gets to the heart of why we, well, why I decided and why you, many of you have graciously endured with this sermon series. Allow me to read the end of that rather lengthy quote I gave at the beginning of this series. Quote, Until the holy spirit is again given his rightful place in our hearts, thoughts and activities, there can be no improvement. Until it be recognized, there we are. Until it be recognized that we are entirely dependent upon his operations for all spiritual blessing, the root of tr- the trouble cannot be reached. Until it is recognized that it is not by power my might, excuse me, of trained workers nor by power of intellectual argument or or persuasive appeal, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord, there will be no deliverance from that fleshly zeal which is not according to knowledge and which is now paralyzing Christendom. Until the Holy Spirit is honored, sought, and counted upon, the present spiritual drought must continue. May it please our gracious God to give the right messages and prepare the hearts of our readers to receive that which will be to his glory, to the furtherance of his cause upon earth, and to the good of his dear people. You'll remember that, those of you who were here or have heard those messages, that I made the point that A.W. Pink wrote these words. Not last year, not last decade, not even in this century. He wrote these words in 1933. And if he was speaking about 1933 in such bleak terms, what would he say about our day? And if his appeal that he makes here was, uh, was valid in 1933, I would argue it's equally as valid in 2021 without the spirit pouring out his blessing upon the people of god in revival we would we would just keep doing the same things over and over and over again to no profit how you know kofi i know because i have seen it firsthand in 2012 i joined a church called grace life london some of you who know me know i speak very fondly of that church i left a otherwise okay church and lots of ways to join that church. I knew the pastors well, and I knew that as a 21-year-old when I joined that church, it would be a place where I could grow and serve well. But boy, did I underestimate how much God was doing in that little building in central London. Great South London wasn't perfect. I mean, no church is, but I I genuinely believe that in the five years I was there, we were at the epicenter of what I look back on now, especially the first two or three years, what I can only describe as a revival. We saw souls saved. We saw believers strengthened. I can vividly remember I would sit front row, about where Eddie's stuff is right there. I would sit there every Sunday and I can remember Sundays hearing the word being preached with great power and sitting there with a face full of tears as the word of God was being proclaimed with power and with precision and just wishing as it were that the sermons would go on for another hour. I can remember being there on a Wednesday night for Bible study. Bible study started at seven. We'd be finished at about nine. But that was when the Bible study ended because then we would sit in the basement of the church, which was quite large and was carpeted and had seats. And so we'd, a bunch of us would sit down there in the basement and for hours we would talk about the things of God and occasionally we'd have the non-Christian with us. And you, I always remember a few of us would always be talking with non-Christians, proclaiming the gospel and dealing with objections. Can vividly remember times where we would, after a service, be just so moved that we would just have these moments, these, as it, well, it felt like forever. They weren't long times in hindsight, but these times where we just get together, and we would just sing hymns together, or after a service, my pastor, Tom, at the time, lived in the church. It had a little apartment that was kind of his parsonage, and so, every so often after service, he'd invite me to come into his little um, kitchen and we'd just sit there for a couple of hours after he'd preached because our service was in the afternoon. So, he would, that evening, we'd sit in his parsonage for a couple of hours and we would just open up the word of God and just talk. I genuinely believe that it was no exaggeration that our little church in central London experienced the move of god's spirit in true revival like i said i was 21 when i joined that church march i believe it was march the 7th of 2012 21 when i joined that church left it having just turned 27 to move here and brothers and sisters i I would not be the man that i am today spiritually were it not for that season i experienced in that little church plant called grace life london in a lot of ways this whole series on the personal work of the holy spirit has been kind of leading to this message here the aim has been to kind of, I think I said this in the first message, to reverse our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit so that as we know who He is and we know what He does, He would then pour out His blessing upon us again as we cry out to God for reawakening, as we cry out to God to send revival upon His people again. Revival, I mean, it's not really a popular word in today's. Christian parlance, more often than not, we kind of think of a church gets together, has an event for a week, and they say, oh, we're having a revival. But that's not, one, one, that's not quite what the word is, and two, that's not a word that we can afford to ignore. Especially not just because I experienced, it, not because I agreed with A.W. Pink's view, but if I'm really honest, if I, excuse me, as a younger man, I look at the church in 2021, the church of my generation, as it were, if there's one thing that the church needs in 2021, it is God-sent, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, Bible-driven, faith-fueled, prayer-saturated revival. If I can speak bluntly this morning, brothers and sisters, God's Spirit needs to wake us up from, as it were, just playing church. From, as it were, giving God the crumbs of our life while we give the world the loaf, as it were. From a superficial, cuddly Christianity that can barely get out of its spiritual bed in the morning while the world races itself to head into a Christless eternity in hell, separated from God. If we're going to see the world transformed, if we're going to see, forget the world, just the rogue valley that we live in. If we're going to see just even this valley transformed for Christ, it's going to take revival. This morning I want to talk revival with you because as you might can tell, this has been on my mind since November. I kind of wanted to get to this message back then. But yeah, to lay a sufficient foundation, kind of understand who the Spirit is, understand the full, as much as we could about the fullness of His work, so that when we talked about this, it made some sense. So this morning, I want to talk about revival. Got a few questions I want to ask about the nature of revival. I'll try not to be before you long. Let's get straight to work. Question number one this morning, what is revival? What is Revival. I mean, if we're going to pursue this thing, if we're going to pray for it, if we're going to trust the Lord to send it, it might help if we know what we're asking God to send. (laughs) So, let's talk what revival is. Dr. William R. Downing, in his rather helpful book, Lectures on Revivals of Religion, gives this definition of revival. i have put it there in your study guide, so you have it. He defines revival in what I think is a very biblically sensitive way. He says, quote, A revival is an outpouring of God's Spirit, Bringing a heightened degree of spiritual life, an earnestness in spiritual things, and a purity in life, a renewed purity, excuse me, in life and worship. An outpouring of God's Spirit, bringing a heightened degree of spiritual life, an earnestness in spiritual things, and a renewed purity in life and worship. By my count, there were four features there. Let's break that down some. First of all, revival is an outpouring of God's Spirit. Revival isn't something that you kind of work up, you know, kind of like a frenzy for religious folks. That would be technically revival's, what I like to call revival's evil cousin, revivalism. Dr. Downing defines that term for us. Revivalism refers to the application and use of, Of certain methods or measures to produce religious excitement and promote religious decisions. The application and use of certain methods or measures to produce religious excitement and promote religious decisions. If that kind of sounds familiar, that's been evangelicalism and i don't mean to be the british guy bagging on americans but american evangelicalism for like the last 150 years if you know, those of you who know your church history you will know the name charles finney evangelist on the east coast heretic on multiple levels denied original sin denied the imputation of christ's righteousness taught a doctrine of the atonement that's a complete mess but he was obsessed with as it were seeing what happened in the first great awakening And saying, which was very good, the first great awakening and saying, how can we reproduce that in a part of the country that's very hardened to the gospel? Well, you need to create these measures. So he developed these things called what he called the new measures. Stuff like the anxious bench where he would preach these long sermons. And if somebody showed an element of anxiety about their spiritual state, he moved them onto this anxious bench. But the anxious bench wasn't where you went to get saved. It was where he kind of hit you a little harder, as it were, and kind of worked up this almost hysteria. The sinner's prayer that we think is so ubiquitous and so popular, he was the first guy to do that in church history. People weren't doing that before him. And you may think, okay, well, I've never seen an anxious bench a day in my life. Okay, yeah, I've heard the sinner's prayer thing. But, you know, we're not doing all of that today. No, but the principle of revivalism that he kind of brought into the focus, that continues to this day. So that's why you can walk into any number of so-called mega churches in this country. And everything is basically geared with a, creating a response from people that you can kind of work up and work down. So the music is a certain way. It's very entertainment driven. You know, we don't preach serious messages here because we're not trying to do all that. You know, we're trying to appeal to you on the level of your emotions to provoke a response. So you get the music thumping so loud that it produces a euphoric response. Or in some circles, you kind of do the polar opposite. The music is so slow, it's so droning that it kind of works up these really melancholic feelings from deep within you get the clever gimmicks on it. I have seen things in the last few years that I never thought I'd seen in church. Pastors lining You can see this stuff on YouTube. I'm not making it up. You, pastors ziplining into the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Pastors bringing in monster trucks on the pulpit, bringing in BMX stuntmen. You, there you think, why on earth are you doing all this? Well, you're trying to provoke a response. You're trying to kind of hit people on the measure of their emotions you're trying to hit people on the level of how they feel whoa that's huge now i have your attention i can slap some jesus on the end as the saying goes there ain't no business like show business and apparently these churches have figured out that you can do all of that and slap some jesus on the end now i say all of that because you might get an emotional reaction you might even get a decision but that's not true revival true revival Is a sovereign work of the Spirit as He, sovereign work of God, excuse me, as He pours out His Spirit once again upon His people. Yes, we've already seen in this series multiple times that when you become a believer, you receive all of the Spirit when you're saved. Yet there are moments in our lives when we recognize that we can lose perspective. There are moments when we aren't walking. Remember we did a message in Ephesians 5, the filling of the Spirit, that day-by-day conscious control that the Spirit takes of us. Well, there are moments where we don't walk in that. There can be whole periods where we don't walk in that, where churches don't walk in that, where regions don't walk in that. And in those moments, the Spirit of God has to, as it were, step in. He has to act and say, I will awaken my people again. And so first and foremost, revival is an outpouring of God's spirit. Secondly, revival is God's spirit bringing a heightened degree of spiritual life. The key word there, heightened. It's not that in revival we do something different from what we've always done. It's not like, well, the preaching of the word is dry, communion doesn't work, fellowship doesn't work, prayer doesn't work. No, we need to do something different. No, 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 no. As we'll see in just a moment when we look at scripture, revival is not something new and something like fantastical, as it were. It's God giving a heightened sense to the things that He's already commanded us to do. And when you look at revivals in the Bible and you look at revivals in history, the components of those revivals aren't different from the regular spiritual life of God's people prayer, God's word, preaching, fellowship the Lord's table, those things that God gives us, what in theologians we call, in theologians call, excuse me, the ordinary means of grace. What happens in revival is that God takes those regular things that we do, as it were, and he ratchets up their effectiveness. Um, Some of you remember the movie, was it Spinal Tap? It says these go to 11. Well, in revival, as it were, things go way above and beyond 11. Thirdly, Revival leads to earnestness about spiritual things. Revival leads to earnestness about spiritual things. When God's people experience revival, they give greater attention to the things of God. They give greater attention to the things of God. The distractions that so often plague us in these moments narrow into a sharp spiritual focus that you can't shake it for anything. And again, you look at the history of God's people, and we'll talk more about this in just a moment, and you see this very thing this unusual earnestness. I come from the United Kingdom, as you know. We have stories of people walking miles through the Bedfordshire Forest at the time to go and hear John Bunyan preach. John Bunyan's job was he was a tinker, he fixed pots that man John Owen who was argued one of England's greatest theologians said I will trade all my learning to be able to preach like that man you hear these stories of people gathering again coming from the UK particularly up in Scotland when they would have communion seasons as it were and thousands of people would gather for outdoor communion services Baptism services that would last two to three hours, not far from the church that I mentioned, Grace Life London, in Clark and well Green. 20,000 people gathering to hear George Whitfield preach. When revival comes, people give God their full attention. Finally, revival results in renewed purity in life and worship. Revival results in renewed purity in life and worship. You see, revival is not just God's means of re-empowering His church. It's His means of purifying His church and weaning His church from the world. It's His means of kind of getting us fixated on Him and no longer fixated on this world. I mean, we, we generally don't like to talk like that these days, do we? We, we generally try to avoid talking like that. I don't want to sound fanatical. I don't want to sound too into this. You know, I've got other things I need to take care of. You know, like the parable that Jesus told. You know, the rich man who had a wedding and had sent out invites and then to come time for the wedding. He sent everyone to come in for the wedding and The text says that one person said, Lord, I I just got married. I I can't turn up for that. Well, the implication being, wait, you didn't know that before you accepted my invitation? Lord, I I bought some oxen. I need to go try them. You didn't try them when you were buying them? The implication was these are all excuses. Well, in revival, that kind of gets turned on its head. All the excuses pale in comparison. The worldliness. Oh, there's a world we don't talk about no more. Worldliness. I mean, when was the last time you heard a message about that? All of those moments where we are so wedded to the things of this world. Those moments start to be crushed and they pale in comparison to the beauty of the things of God. Could it be that part of the reason we don't talk about worldliness is because if we're really honest deep down inside, we know that we're maybe a little more worldly in our orientation than we would like to admit? it makes us uncomfortable to talk about that subject because we know deep down inside, uh, in the words of the famous quote, I don't know why you're clapping, I'm talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> if you are curious about that subject of wilderness, I actually did preach a message here not too long ago called a hate-hate relationship. You can you see it on our YouTube channel for so 1 John chapter 2, defining what wilderness actually is. But coming back to our message, you take those four realities, that revival is an outpouring of God's spirit, that it's a, the spirit of God bringing a heightened degree of spiritual life, that it leads to earnestness about spiritual things, that it results in renewed purity and life and worship. You put all of that together, and that's what revival is. Well, if that's our working definition for this morning, that Revival is an outpouring of God's Spirit, bringing a heightened degree of spiritual life and earnestness in spiritual things and a renewed purity in life and worship. If it's all of that, well, what are the marks of genuine revival? How do we know that a revival is actually happening? Well, that's my second question this morning. What are the marks of revival? What are the marks of revival? When we read the Scriptures, we can glean a number of marks of revival revival i'm actually indebted to an author called william sprague he was a 19th century presbyterian author and he wrote a book also called the lectures on revivals of religion and he actually condenses these really well so i borrowed these headings from him because i thought they were a good way of kind of summarizing the subject what are the marks of genuine revival first of all you see the centrality of the word of god the centrality of the word of god turn with me to nehemiah chapter 8 show you this in your bible for a moment nehemiah in chapter eight well actually start in chapter seven um right at the end of chapter seven and we'll read into chapter eight you should know nehemiah is the story of nehemiah who was the cupbearer to the king of the empire and he asked to go back and rebuild jerusalem after he hears reports of the city basically being in ruins I'm going to read from the middle of verse 73 of chapter 7 into chapter 8, verse 1. The text says, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, chapter 8, verse 1, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate, one of the gates at the city of Jerusalem. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out from it from daybreak until noon. Basically from 6 a.m. till noon, he simply just reads God's word. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. That's why Bible-believing churches have always had pulpits in them, because it's imitating that practice of a platform that is created specially for the purpose of the reading and proclamation of God's Word. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shemar, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajiah, Hashem, Hashbanadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Wonder where we get that practice from? Right here. Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Jump down with... Actually, I'll keep reading verse 7. Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Jacob, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Do you notice the unusual attention that's being given to the Word of God in this moment? Hours of hearing it read, people going forth and explaining it, people think about these kinds of physical reactions that they are kind of manifesting they're the kinds of things that we typically associate with other things in worship when was the last time that we saw people literally get up raise their hands and bow not during the musical time but during the reading and preaching of god's word that's not typically what we do but that's what happens here why because the spirit of god is giving unusual attention to these things. We're in Ezra. Turn back a book to Second Chronicles for a moment. Another scene where this kind of plays itself out. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Well, we're in Nehemiah, excuse me. A couple of books back. You'll hit 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Chapter 34. The scene here is is well judah excuse me has a new king the new king is king josiah he's one of the good ones aren't many of them by this point in his, in judah's history excuse me but he's one of the good ones and in chapter 34 he decides that the temple the house of god among his people that the temple needs repairs and so as they start repairs i hope you're there with me second chronicles chapter 34 jump down to verse 14 with me for a moment second chronicles 34 and 14 when they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the lord's temple the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law written by the hand of moses consequently Hilkiah told the court secretary shaphan i have found the book of the law in the lord's temple and he gave the book to shaphan pause for a second so they're repairing this temple which israel's previous no judah's previous king excuse me josiah's dad manasseh was a far from good person he was bad <laughs> well manasseh was his grandfather amon was his dad and his dad wasn't much better <laughs> and so the temple has just lied in ruins while nobody goes to worship they're worshiping on all these high places these places that were erected for idol worship They're worshipping in all these environments. And then Josiah says, no, 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 no. We need to get back to worshipping the Lord. He brings about this reformation, as it were. But in the midst of this reformation, they find the book of the Lord. The implication being nobody had read it. Verse 16. Shaphan took the book to the king and also reported, your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They... They have emptied out the silver that was found in the Lord's temple and have given it to the overseers and to those doing the work. Then the court, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilkiah gave me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He hears God's word and the king's response, tearing your clothes in the ancient world was a sign of mourning he realizes that, oh, everything that's happening to this nation is happening because we neglected the book. And that's the beginning of a reformation that sweeps through this nation, all because a king hears God's word that was lost in God's house. Can can, can you see the picture there for just a moment? (laughs) Can, Can I park for a moment and just put an observation to you? Could it be, let's leave Josiah's day and come back to 2021 for just a second. Could it be that the spiritual apathy we see in the church is because we've forgotten God's book in his own house? Could the issue with so much of the body of Christ be that the sheep don't really care for the voice of the shepherd anymore? Oh, how do you hear the voice of the shepherd? You hear the voice of the shepherd in his word. Beloved, God speaks life into existence. He did it at creation. He does it in our salvation. And in breathing new life into his people, he does the same thing. You can't have a revival without people going back to the word of God. Okay, Colby, um, all right, there's a couple of texts. I mean, that's in the Bible times, though. Okay, can I give you arguably what I think was the greatest single revival in history? The Reformation. (laughs) The Reformation was essentially a movement about two things justification the bible you can't have a revival you look at every revival that has happened in the history of god's people since then the bible is always central so you have the centrality of the word of god but secondly you have the centrality of prayer the centrality of prayer prayer has always preceded mighty acts of god in the history of his people we don't have time, but I would argue for you, to you that the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost are the prototype of all revivals that take place in this gospel age. Yes, Pentecost was a unique event not to be repeated. And yet there are things we see on the day of Pentecost that I think have great implication for revivals throughout the gospel age. We all, last week we read it, didn't we, in our scripture reading, Acts chapter 2 the pouring out of the Spirit. But oftentimes, Acts chapter 2 is divorced from what happened in Acts chapter 1. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has gone up into heaven just as um, he promised that he would. Jump down to verse 12 with me. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs, the famous upper room as it's been called, where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Remember, Jesus had told them that they were to wait for the promise of the Father. Well, they're listening. They're waiting. But as they're waiting, they're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs saying, well, I should probably be on Facebook until this thing happens. I mean, they obviously didn't have Facebook in the first century. But, you know, oh, let's go fishing. I'm going to go catch a nap. No, the text says that they were continually united in prayer. And it's as they are continually given to prayer that the promise of the Father comes into fulfillment. Jesus had already told them that, listen, the promise of the Father is coming. Wait for it. But the waiting for it didn't preclude them praying. You see, revival is a sovereign work of God. You can't pray a revival down, as it were. But catch this this is again that author i mentioned sprague he puts it like this prayer as a means of grace or a means of promoting revivals is distinguished in one respect from every other all other means are addressed immediately to men this directly to god so in other words every other means that we may use to pray and to seek revival all of those other means we may use the study of God's word, giving ourselves intentionally to worship, giving ourselves intensely to the means of grace. All of those things, fine, they work among us. But in prayer, prayer is not us. Prayer is us directed towards God. And all others are dependent in in no small degree for their success on this. For ministers and Christians may labor, no matter how faithfully, and it will be to no purpose without a divine influence. And that influence is to be secured only by prayer. You can't pray a revival down, but you can prepare for a revival by being on your knees, as it were. The centrality of the Word of God, the centrality of prayer. Thirdly, the centrality of worship and preaching. Centrality of worship and preaching. As I was putting this message together, one of the things that I was really surprised by it. I don't know why I was, but I was really surprised by it. Was that when you look at revivals that have happened in the history of God's people, all of them lead to life being breathed into the regular, ordinary worship of God's people. It's not that the worship was bad, but it seems as, like I said, there's a heightening, there's an intensity that is ratcheted up. I mean, we see that in Acts chapter 2. So the Spirit comes, and what's the first thing that happens? They speak the wonderful works of God, and Peter preaches a sermon. And when you look at history, we see the same thing. If I give you again a couple of examples I know from my history in the UK. In the 1980s, a revival broke out in Northern Ireland. And at the core of it was not a Sunday service, not a tent crusade or an evangelistic program you know what the center of that revival was in the 1980s? A Tuesday night Bible study taught by a pastor called Willie Mullen, Logan Baptist Church. The Tramp for God was his name because he was formerly homeless before he came to know the Lord. History tells us that hundreds, I've not had the chance to see that building, but I've seen pictures of it. It's not a big building. Well, the building at the time, since moved into a larger one. But hundreds of people, history tells us, packed that little sanctuary in Northern Ireland Tuesday night after Tuesday night as he taught various books of the Bible. Over 1,500 messages that he recorded are still available online. Preached through the Gospel of John, preached through Ecclesiastes. Those are two of the ones that I've heard. And people came from far and wide across the UK on a Tuesday night. Not for a prayer meeting, not for, you know, a special event, not for a concert. They came for a Bible, in in fact, in the UK, we don't call them Bibles, we call them Bible classes. George Whitfield, the Anglican evangelist who later became a co-founder of the Methodist movement, he visited an area called Cambyslund in in Scotland, just not too far from Glasgow. When he was there, he reported the following. This is from his own words, quote, On Saturday, I preached to above 20,000 people. In my prayer, the power of God came down and was greatly felt. In my two sermons on the Lord's Day, yet there was more power. On the Sabbath, scarce was there ever a sight seen in Scotland like this. There were undoubtedly upwards of 20,000 people gathering for, he mentions two sermons because the tradition was in those days, you had a morning service and an evening service. You can't imagine how much chaos that is. 20,000 people making their way to church on Sunday. They've got to go home and then come back again. Remember that definition that I gave for revival? An earnestness in spiritual things, a renewed purity in life and worship. Can I put it to you that the chief way we see that happening is in the gathering of God's people moving from it's an obligation, I have to go, to a necessity. I need to go. Allow me to share an opinion I have. This is 100% an opinion. This is just me. I come from a country where, typically, our churches have always had a morning and an evening service. That goes all the way back to the Reformation, where the same thing happened. I find it interesting that, as we've seen spiritual life decline in the West, I'm not the only one who's made this point, the... Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, who now passes in Cleveland, Ohio, he's made a similar point hundreds of times. As spiritual life has declined in this country, one of the first signs that that usually happens is churches get rid of additional worship services. We're content to just do the one time on Sunday. God, I gave you my two hours, but the rest of my week is really busy. Rather than what our fathers in the faith understood, which was that you kind of ordered your life around the church we kind of flip the order. We order church around everything else. Could it be, again, this is totally my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. You can be mad at me for saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway because I have a microphone and you don't. (laughs) Could it be, by some stretch of the imagination, could it be that part of the problem that we have in not seeing revival is God sits in heaven and basically says, I can't get you to come out for the stuff that you already do. okay just just a theory i have do with that what you will but come back to my message as these things happen the centrality of god's word the centrality of prayer the centrality of gathered worship as these things happen god's people emerge in, emerge strengthened for the mission of seeing the lost saved there's a reason why when revivals hit the first people that are affected are the church but very quickly the revival doesn't stay in the church people start going out and proclaiming the gospel and you start to hear these stories of all the souls saved. It's not that the revival happened out there. No, the revival caught in God's people. And when the revival caught with them, they couldn't keep these things to themselves. They had to go and we cannot help, as the apostle said, we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. And that's how you see the lost being saved and believers being strengthened. David was mentioning Wales um, to me this morning as we were getting set up. Had the opportunity to go to Wales many times. You drive through the Welsh countryside and you'll just see chapel after chapel after chapel after chapel. As revival hit, particularly in 1904 through 1905, there was a really major revival that happened in Wales. The first thing that happened was people just started chapels. Chapels were these little church buildings. Just as quickly as they could put them together, they put them together. Why? Because they just wanted to as it were, see the gospel spread through the Welsh countryside like wildfire. Can God do that in our day and age? I absolutely believe he can do that. But let's be clear. Where God is at work, the adversary will be at work too. Where God is at work, the devil will be there too. My dad used to say, listen, not just, he said, it's not just God and angels who go to church. The devil and demons go to church too. And so even as revival happens, there can be things that happen which make us pause. There can be things that on the surface look like a revival, but they're not. They look like they're a move of God, but they're actually a move of the evil one. Well, how do we tell? How do I determine if I'm experiencing a move of God or a move of the evil one? How do I tell? Well, that's my final point this morning. My final point this morning. How do you test a revival? And for this, Turn with me to the first letter of John, 1 John in chapter 4. Keep your Bible here because we're not going to go anywhere else after this. 1 John chapter 4. As I said, in our day and age, there are a lot of movements that are claiming to be the very thing that I just described. True revival sent from God. So we need to ask, is there a foolproof way to know whether something claiming to be a move of God genuinely is? I think there is. And I think the key comes to us in this passage. 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. The apostle says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Let's just stop there for a second. There is no, let me me just say this because I feel like this needs to be said in our day and age. It is not a mark of spirituality to believe everybody who names the name of Jesus. It's not spiritual just to say, well, I never want to question if somebody, this person said they speak for, why would I be so, you know, I've had people tell me this, why would I be so bold as to tell somebody they don't speak for God? Because my Bible says not everyone speaks for God. <laughs> but it's a difference, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, that's a staggering thought. Well, how do I know? Verses 2 through 6, he gives us a bunch of tests. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. (coughs) Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Can I give you four questions you should ask whenever you see a revival? I like questions. It's a good way to make people think. So four questions. Number one, does this revival exalt the true Christ? So verses 2 and 3, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You know when a move of God is from God because front and center is not people, it's not personalities, it's not an organization. First and foremost is Christ, the Christ of the Bible. If they preach the wrong Jesus, it's not a move of God. If I can name some names this morning. I'm sorry. Bethel Church does not preach the Christ of Scripture. If you know anything about Bethel Church, they preach that. Jesus came just as a man. He wasn't God. He did everything that he did as a man. And because he did everything he did as a man, well, you and I, we are just men and women. We're just flesh and blood. So we can do everything that Jesus did. They kind of cut off Jesus' deity, exalt his humanity, so that then they can say, you do exactly what he does. I'm sorry. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, I heartily affirm that Jesus did what he did, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that he came just as a man. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the JWs ain't the one. The Jesus of the Mormons, who's the brother of Lucifer, not the one. If they preach the wrong Jesus, it's not a move of God. And that should make sense. After all, isn't Jesus the center of everything? Isn't he the Focus of everything that we do? Isn't he the capstone of the message we preach? He's not the only thing we preach, but he is the vein that runs through all of it. If they can't get Jesus right, they can't get anything else right. A true revival points to the true Christ, and a true revival points people to the truth that Christ preach. So, number one, does this revival well, does it exalt the true Christ? Secondly, Does this revival oppose worldliness and affirm holiness? Does this revival oppose worldliness and affirm holiness? Verses 4 and 5. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is greater than the one who is in you, excuse me, is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world and the world listens to them. In true revival, true moves of God, we, like I said, we are weaned from the world and our affections are wed to Christ and to holy things. Jonathan Edwards, who in his day had to grapple with the revival that was happening and people asking questions whether this was a true move of God, he said this. He said, quote, the spirit that is at work, the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts. In other words, he was talking about the revival of his day, what we call the great awakening. He said the great awakening, one of the reasons we know this thing is true is that it operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom. And he says the interests are that they encourage and establish sin and that they cherish men's worldly lusts. He goes on and says, this is a sure sign that it is a true and not a full spirit. He said, I'm pretty confident that this revival that we experienced in the 1740s, this revival was 100% true because it had nothing to do with the interests of this world. So in the 60s and 70s, the prosperity gospel movement came in teaching people that god wants you to be healthy wealthy and prosperous oh you mean the same thing that just about every wealthy person wants i'm yet to meet a person christian or non-christian alike who wants to be sick who wants to be broke and wants nobody to like them i believe it was john piper who said money and prosperity can't be the things that god gives to bless his people because those are the exact same things that the devil's people want And that's not to say that money is bad. That's not to say that we don't work hard and that God doesn't prosper his people. No. But if all the preaching that you hear, if all the teaching you hear is focused on that, if it, as it were, it just appeals to your carnal nature, it appeals to the things of this world. Did you see what John said? He said, the false teachers are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world. It's the world's interest and the world listens to them. Why they are telling them what they want? in contrast the true move of god's spirit the true move of god's spirit says no the one that is in you is greater than the one that is in the world you don't need to pursue worldliness you need to pursue more of christ thirdly does this revival point people to the word of god verse six we are from god anyone who knows god listens to us Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. The us there is a reference to the apostles and the message that they brought in other words anybody who truly speaks for God speaks in conformity to what we the apostles what we have already said. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. The apostles' doctrine is central and how do we have the apostles' doctrine today? Your bible Show me any movement that denigrates the Bible, and I'll show you a movement that doesn't come from God, simply put. True revival is Bible revival. In revival, God's people want God's voice, and God's voice is found in His Word. Any revival that tells you that God's voice is in the mouth of some spiritual shaman, some guy you need to go see in a tent somewhere, basically, and he calls himself an apostle and a prophet. I don't care if he wears a t-shirt and jeans like I am today, or he wears a three-piece suit like I would normally wear, regardless of what he looks like. Any move of God that tells you to ignore the scriptures. God didn't give us... I've heard people say this, and I, I can't hear it anymore. It just makes my blood boil. I've already got high blood pressure problems god didn't give us a book he gave us the spirit i'm trying not to get mad in the pulpit what kind of nonsense any move of god that tells you to look within you and hear god's voice that's what god promised god said my sheep hear my voice he didn't say my sheep read a book listen any time you encounter any so-called move of god that denigrates this book can i give you some helpful advice as your brother who loves you let let me give you some advice turn off the youtube video don't even throw the books drop kick them into the trash delete the podcast if you need to i can tell you on the authority of god's word that that ain't god okay what's the final mark of true revival does it exalt the true christ does it oppose worldliness and affirm holiness does it point people to god's word fully does it elevate the truth Did you catch the end of verse 6 there? This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. The spirit's work always leads to an elevation of and a love for the truth. Jonathan Edwards, once again, he said, quote, another rule by which to judge the spirit may be drawn by observing the manner of of the operation of a spirit that is among the w- that is at work among the people. If it, the spirit, operates as a spirit of truth, leading men to truth, convincing them of those things that are true, we may safely determine that it is a right and true spirit. Compare that with some movements in our day, which actually says that God doesn't care about stuff like doctrine, theology, Bible study, truth. You know, those are the things that... You know, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Totally taking that verse out of context. No, 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 no. no. Any movement that favors experience and reason over doctrinal truth isn't in line with the apostles and their teaching. John would have us to understand that you know the Spirit's at work because he's the Spirit of truth, and you can contrast that with the Spirit of deception. You take those four ideas, and I hope that gives you a bit of a filter. A bit of a grid through which you can interpret true moves of God from false ones. I don't want to leave this message on a down note though. I don't want to leave this series on a down note as we conclude this morning. As we conclude this morning, can I put it to you that we genuinely need revival? There's so much more. I had to leave so much out because there's so much that we could say on this subject my prayer is that this little survey of the subject, and I've put some resources there in your study guide this week, that if you want to dig deeper into this, you can. I hope that this little survey of this kind of whets your appetite for believing that God could genuinely send a revival in our day. I don't know about you, but I pray for it often. I'm tired of superficial Christianity. I'm tired of having to beg people to come to church, come hear God's Word, Not even come to church here. Just be in a church. Be in fellowship. Be praying. Be hearing the things of God. Be passionate. I'm kind of tired of having to... I'm going to be honest with you and tell you what lots of preachers won't tell you. We get sick and tired of having to beg people to do stuff all the time. If you're a parent, you know exactly how I feel. (laughs) Beloved, as we close out this sermon series on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I don't... I would have failed in my mission. Wasted hours of my life giving up precious precious sleep writing sermons if you walked away from this and said oh that was nice i feel like i understand the holy spirit a little bit better now beloved my hope is that as we think about the personal work of the holy spirit that our response would be i need his empowerment in my life i need him to give me focus i need him to help me to put aside the distractions to put aside the well i've got to take care of this god god you understand and god in heaven saying no i don't (laughs) well god you know i'm busy you know i don't have time god you know i've got to deal with this god no 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 my hope has been that as we've spent time thinking about the personal work of the holy spirit as we i hope Torn this Bible up, going backwards and forwards, asking, What is it that he does and who is he? My hope is that we would seek his empowerment, that we would give ourselves to earnest study of his word, earnest prayer, earnestly engaging in worship, and saying, God, will you send revival? That's like we read in the psalm this morning. Would you not revive us again so that we may rejoice in you? Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father and our God, we come to the end of this lengthy study that we've been engaged in on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen so much, we've considered so much. But Father, we don't want to end with just understanding these things intellectually. Father, it's my prayer that as we've heard these things, that as I finish preaching, you would start working. That you would start ministering to your people. That you would start doing business with us as we do business with you. That you would touch our hearts. That you would awaken us afresh. Again, we join our words with the words of the psalmist. There's no better way to put it. Will you not revive us again so that we, your people, may rejoice in you father we pray that as your spirit has been with us from the beginning of this series till now that he would be with us as we meditate on these things help us to make the changes that we need to passionately pursue you father we can't manipulate a revival down but we can prepare our hearts to receive it and so, Father, would you help us to do that even now as we conclude this service of worship? We ask these things in Jesus' name.